sermon this morning is entitled, Bring Your Mass to Jesus. Allow me to read to you from God's holy word. John 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Amen. <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't laugh at the King James Version of the Bible, I'm sorry, but you just need to shake off those heavy bands, lift up those holy... Only some of you know that old camp song. We are going to talk today about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is a weird story, and not just because the King James Version of the Bible calls the colt an ass, which is the old King James way of saying colt, just so you know. It's a funny story because a lot of weird things happen all at once, and because we're used to certain traditions about how we read the story, we often miss some of the beauty and also the tragedy in the story. So I want you to turn preferably not in the King James Version, to Luke 19. I'm going to read an alternative text of the story this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to truly worship Jesus as a coming king. Verse 28 says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and did just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their, colts on the colt, their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Okay, so this is the strange context of this story. Now, the end of this story, you have to understand, is, is uh, this beautiful moment of worship that turns into tragedy, but, but the beginning of the story is strange because it's kind of like, it's kind of like, not the same as, but kind of like, Jesus tells his disciples to go steal a donkey. And then when they get there, Jesus says, if anyone asks you why you're taking this donkey, just say, well, the Lord has need of it. Which, in our day and age, would just come across like a clever ploy to get out of an armed robbery charge. I'm taking your car because the Lord has need of it. Okay, then. Now, some scholars say that that phrase was um, not legally binding, but it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, meant as an oath so that they could trust that the rabbi would bring the donkey back. But it's still a little bit strange, isn't it? that the rabbi would send for a donkey and the disciples go and they get it and when they're asked why they're just taking a donkey that isn't theirs, they say, the Lord has need of it. And people are like, okay, that's good enough for me. And then they take the donkey and then they put jackets on it and Jesus gets on it and he uses this donkey covered in jackets to enter Jerusalem. How we celebrated Palm Sunday growing up was we were in a Pentecostal church and, and Palm Sunday was meant to be like the highest expression 
of a church's worship. And so when you came in, the ushers would give you palm branches. And you would, in the middle of worship, you'd wave palm branches. But that wasn't the only time you waved things in our church when I was growing up. Uh, My grandpa, Ken Bombay, was our senior pastor. And what he would do is he would, whenever the Spirit led him, he would pull out his hanky and he would wave it in the air as a sign of the Lord's victory and as a sign of his surrender. And some of the old timers would do the same. And then when people stopped wearing hankies, he would hand out Kleenex boxes. So people would have lots of things to wave in the middle of church. This, of course, preceded flagging, which is, you know, something that some of us do here and we have some somewhere in the building. But this whole idea that this moment of worship is is constructed around Jesus sending the disciples to get a donkey that is not theirs is kind of strange. It's kind kind of like, again, it's not the same as, but it's kind of like stealing. It's kind of like your pastor stealing. It's kind of like your pastor stealing a car. It's kind of like that time my dad stole a car. (laughs) Has anyone ever heard this story? If you have, it's good enough that I can tell it again. I've never had the privilege of telling this story. I've only had the privilege of hearing this story. But I was there when it happened. So I can tell it to you as a witness. We were in the previous church in Comox Valley. And my dad was ministering to a man whose mother lived in the community but did not attend our church. And she passed away of a heart attack, of a stroke, when she was shopping at the grocery store. So he reached out to my dad and said, they've taken my mom's body, we're going through the whole process, could you go to the grocery store? Could you get her keys? Could you go to the grocery store? And could you retrieve her car? I think it was a Buick. It was an Oldsmobile. See, the great thing about this is that I have the real man himself, the car thief himself, sitting in the front row. Fortunately, he has repented of his sin, and uh, so he can give me the details as they emerge. So there's this Oldsmobile in the parking lot, and he has the keys, and he needs to go retrieve this woman's car, who he does not really know, who has passed away from the parking lot, and park it at the church. The funeral is going to take place at the church. Her son will retrieve the car. Now, the keys on this vehicle have a Playboy Bunny uh, keychain. And the previous pastors of this church had moral failures preceding dad. So dad does not want to be in this community with a Playboy Bunny keychain for even 30 seconds. He's super uncomfortable with this. So he gets to the parking lot. He looks for all the Oldsmobiles that fit the description. He finds the one. He unlocks the car door, he starts the car, he drives it to the church, no questions asked, no problems. They get to the morning, I think it was Sunday morning, was it Sunday morning or was it the morning of the funeral? Sunday morning, Sunday morning, morning. dad's preparing for church. And the son comes to him and says, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm so thankful that you volunteered to do that with the car, but it turns out she took the bus and her car has been in her driveway the whole time, so no worries about the car. And then he finds out that a news report went out that a vehicle was stolen the same day from the same grocery store as a lady passed away from a stroke in the grocery store. So before service starts, he calls up the RCMP detachment and says, hey, you know that vehicle that was stolen from the grocery store parking lot? And the officer says, yes, we do. He says, I think I found it. 
So he is the only pastor, to my account, that I know that has uh, stolen a vehicle. But it is strange that a key both unlocked the door and started the vehicle in someone else's car that happened to be in the same parking lot. I don't hold that against him. Of course, that is only his side of the story, right? So we'll have to wait and see what investigators think. But they go and they get this donkey because getting this donkey is, a, is part of a larger prophetic act that Jesus is initiating. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. Brian Zahn likes to say, In every major city, there's always some dude on a horse. Have you ever noticed that whenever you travel anywhere, if you travel to a major city or a historical city, you'll often see a statue, and the statue is always of some dude riding on a horse. Why is the dude riding on a horse? Because the horse represents victory, the horse represents conquest, the horse represents military vision and leadership, courage. A donkey does not represent any of those things. A donkey was probably as embarrassing then as it is now. There's a reason why we no longer use the word that the King James Version uses. Donkeys are stubborn. Donkeys are helpful. But donkeys are not heroic by any stretch of the imagination. So Jesus, to fulfill Zechariah 9, verse 9, picks a donkey. Now, this doesn't feel very important now, but it will become important in a moment. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Another way of thinking about that is, Teacher, stop this uprising. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. See, Jesus thinks that something that is happening in the middle of this prophetic moment is so important that if Jesus told the crowd to stop praising and worshiping him, that the very nature of the universe would become disordered and something as strong and as unmoving, as fixed as a rock would end up lifting its voice in worship to God. That's how important this moment was to Jesus. This isn't an accident. It's certainly strange. And picking a donkey is comical. It's comical. And that's why I started with the King James Version. But whoever these people were that volunteered their donkey for Jesus to ride on, they, were, they ended up volunteering themselves into a liturgical prophetic act that became important for how the rest of Jesus' ministry influenced the city of Jerusalem. And what I'd like to suggest to you today is very simple. I'd like to suggest to you that every moment of worship, every moment of true worship is as important as this moment is. And I would like to say one simple thing to you today. There is a right way and a wrong way to worship Jesus. The wrong way to worship Jesus allows you to celebrate him on a Sunday and kill him on the following Friday. 
The wrong way to worship Jesus allows you to get excited about him when the fervor of the crowd brings an energy that allows you to join into the throng of voices, but doesn't change the inward reality of your heart. So that when the Jesus you thought you're worshiping on Sunday is not the Jesus you find in the garden on Friday, you're willing to chant, crucify him, instead of Hosanna in the highest. I'm convinced that some Christians, myself included, who want to chant Hosanna on Sunday are maybe too willing to chant crucify him on Friday. And the reason why that is true is they are far too subject to the influence of the crowd. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to, your ground and, to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon the other, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." So here's this moment of great victory. They don't let Jesus sit on the donkey without a coat on the donkey, and they don't let the donkey walk on the ground without branches and coats covering the ground. They are participating in this prophetic act. And yet, Jesus is aware, tragically aware, that their worship, although it's important, and he would never stop it, he would never correct it, their worship is subject to forces that are not under his lordship. You may say to yourself, how is, this, how is this possible that a crowd could get caught up with chanting Hosanna on Sunday and crucify him on Friday? Well, a quote that I think about all the time that I think is very important to us as a family, and the reason why it's important to us as a family is a family is never the same as a crowd. But sometimes when we gather, as we've gathered here, the way we think about the room itself and the people within it can become a crowd. And the quote I think of very often in my own personal life is by a man named Soren Kierkegaard. And he said, the crowd is untruth. That doesn't mean that every time you see a crowd gathering, the crowd is wrong. Just to be clear, Okay. But what I am saying is, is that the crowd is not inherently right either. And the crowd can have an influence over you and over your thinking that you may think, oh, I'd never, I'd never succumb to that. I'd never get stirred up like that. And then all of a sudden, in a moment of frenzy, you may go the right way on Sunday and the wrong way on Friday. The first time I was subject to the whims of a crowd was one of the first, it was the second of my only three fight stories. <laughs> Happened in kindergarten. I took on the entirety, minus two girls, they were the only two girls in the class, I took on the entirety of my kindergarten class in a full-on fight. And I must say, I was pretty proud of my performance. Out of the three times I resorted to violence in my life, this one went fairly well. <laughs> we were playing on the playground. 
And we naturally assembled ourselves according to the boys' team and the girls' team. And the boys chase the girls. The boys' team chases the girls' team. Now, it's a bit unfair because there's 10 boys and there's two girls. Now, all the boys have crushes on these two girls because they're the only two girls in the kindergarten class. And pretty soon, Mark, who was the leader, I was kind of his right-hand man, must say. I was a good wingman for Mark. Everyone knew Mark was the alpha male in kindergarten. Mark initiated something known as the great switch. He announced from the top of the slide, I'm on the girls' team now. Suddenly, it was not popular to be on the boys' team. Suddenly, it was popular to be a defender of the girls. And pretty soon, within probably 30 seconds, all of the boys were now on the girls' team, including myself. Now we had no one to chase, nothing to do. We were just looking at each other. So I had this thought, I'm going to go back to the boys' team. So I did the same thing. Now, to be honest with you, I was a bit jealous of Mark and his influence. He was like Caesar and I was Brutus. I was betraying him. But I went to this top of the same slide and said, I am on the boys' team now. And I'll never forget, you know, you're five years old and these things obviously don't matter. And yet they stand out in your memory like nothing else. I enraged these other boys by joining the boys' team. Again, the only boy on the boys' team. Suddenly, 10 other boys began to chase me alone, which at first was fun, right? Because they now have someone to chase, and I'm not like, <laughs> I'm like actually running. I'm willing to sweat, you know? Five-year-old boy is willing to sweat. But they chased me to a fence, and they pushed me against the fence, and pretty soon they pushed me, and then, of course, I didn't like that, so I pushed back, and then they surrounded me, and then someone started kicking me, and then someone started punching me, and I began to attack back with all of my fervent might. Austin, who kicked me over here, I kicked him as hard as I could. I forget who it was. Mark, maybe? Tyler punched me? I punched right back. The boy who punched me actually knocked out a tooth, and that was when it ended. I started spitting blood, and that was when the kindergarten teacher came out and broke us all up. Nine against one. And the most heartbreaking point of the day was that when I started bleeding, I ran to the bathroom and spit, and I realized that I'd spit my tooth out, and then, tragically, it fell down the drain before I could grab it. And so the heartbreak was not only that I got in this fight, but it was that the tooth fairy had no evidence <laughs> to reward me for my suffering. Crowds are subject to strange whims. And the reason why I bring this up and the reason why it's so important is if you don't have a personal desire to worship the real Jesus and submit to his lordship, then the only reason why worship in this setting is powerful to you is actually because the crowd is influencing you. Have you ever had thoughts like this? man, I just wish the worship were just a little bit tighter. I just wish it were a little faster. I kind of want to dance a bit. Or have you ever had this moment? The, the verse switches to the course, and suddenly it's like, now is the time for me to raise my hands. Come on. Can we be honest with one another? The music, the spirit of the room, the way other people are singing, these have a powerful effect. They have a powerful effect on you, and they have a powerful effect on me. Now, this is not wrong, and Jesus, entering into our midst, will never correct you. He'll never say, oh, no, that's not correct. 
But the desire is not that you would worship because you're subject to the spirit of the crowd. The desire is that you would worship God in spirit and in truth. Crowds worship God because the crowd has been stirred into a frenzy. Sons and daughters worship God in spirit and in truth. Families worship because of a deep sense of location and a deep sense of purpose. What I am not saying is that we should become a group of individuals and that in the middle of a soaking time you should decide, I'm going to worship Jesus. And so you stand up and say, I will give you all my worship. And someone's like, hey, could you, we're just praying for someone over here. I am worshiping the Lord. The crowd is untruth. That's not what I'm saying, okay? We've dealt with folks like that. It's crazy complicated. (laughs) You won't believe how many times in a worship moment things get really quiet and then someone's like, Jesus! And you're like, thank you. So appreciate that. Sometimes it's really powerful and sometimes it's like, was that for Jesus or was that for you? I'm not quite sure. I believe the desire Jesus has is for us to be Sons and daughters who worship him in spirit and in truth. But if we don't realize that we're subject to the will of the crowd, we can be subject to its whims. Remember, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, calm down this agitation. And he says, No. So in Mark 15, verse 11, you'll never guess what the same Pharisees do to the crowd when Pilate asks, Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Mark 15, verse 11 says, the Pharisees stirred up the crowd. And here's the possibility. The possibility is that if the crowd can lead you to do the right thing, the crowd can lead you to do the wrong thing too. The reason why this is so heartbreaking for Jesus is Jesus comes in on a donkey on purpose. And here is his purpose. He comes in not as a ruling warlord ready to overthrow Rome. He comes in as a prince of peace. And the reason why he weeps over Jerusalem as he approaches it is he knows they've misunderstood the point. These people who are celebrating Jesus are worshiping Jesus because they think he's about to start a violent revolution. And believe me, if I am going to go into battle with any person on the kindergarten playground, or on the battlefield. (laughs) I'm going to follow the guy who can raise the dead, who can multiply loaves and fishes so that everybody can eat. I'm going to follow the guy who doesn't seem to have a weakness. He's like a living superhero. Not only am I going to believe he's right, but I'm going to believe that I'm right using whatever force is necessary to stop evil. Do you understand that Jesus could have overthrown Caesar and done a pretty good job of it? Do you understand that if there was anyone qualified to rule the world with the threat of violence, not the reality of violence, but with the threat of violence, it would be Jesus? If anyone had a right to conceal and carry a handgun, it would be Jesus. If I was in a room and Jesus was carrying a handgun and someone got shot, I'd be like, hey, Jesus shoots somebody, they deserve to get shot. But that's not how he leads. That's not how he's king. Why is he heartbroken? He's heartbroken because he says, this desire for worshiping me, 
that's stemming from a desire to overthrow evil and oppression. Even though it's good now, it will lead to something bad later. And when you strike them, they're going to strike you, but they're going to surround your city, and they're going to make you suffer. And you will have brought this down upon yourself because you missed the day of your visitation. Did you know that in the original text, Barabbas wasn't named Barabbas? Barabbas was named Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. You know what the word Barabbas means? Son of Abbas. Son of Abba. How did Jesus start the Lord's Prayer? Abba, Father. Standing before you, Pilate presents you Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus, Son of Abba. Jesus of Nazareth, when he is attacked and persecuted and beaten, loves and forgives his enemies. Jesus Barabbas leads a violent revolution against his oppressors. Which Jesus do you want to serve? <laughs> See, there are many Christians today who I don't think worship the Jesus they think they're worshiping. They sing songs about how he's not a baby in the manger anymore. He's not a broken man on the cross. He's coming back one day for vengeance. He's going to come with a sword and he's going to slay his enemies. See, the problem is we were already offered that Jesus and we chose him. We want Jesus to ride in on a horse. We don't want him to ride in on a donkey. We want the kind of God, we want to worship the kind of God who magically solves our problems. We don't want the kind of God who comes alongside us and suffers with us and gives us peace that passes understanding. <laughs> so the reason why I called this sermon Bring Your Mass to Jesus is not just because it rhymes with another word that's funny, that we are allowed to laugh at. It's okay. But also because Mass is the word that the Catholics use for the sacrament of communion. Mass is not only what they receive from the priest when they receive the body and the blood of Jesus, but it's also a word that represents the whole of something. I'd like to suggest to you that the unnamed person who owned the donkey possibly did the best act of worship in this whole story. Because even though it seems silly and even though it seems small, they offered what they had, they put their own skin in the game so that Jesus could initiate a a prophetic liturgy of peace. And here's what I'd like to suggest to us. I'd like to suggest to us that the way you get out of the crowd, the way you begin to worship God in spirit and in truth, is you participate in the patterns of worship that may feel silly and small to you. They may feel as silly and small as bringing Jesus a donkey that he can ride on. But by participating in them, you begin to see what Jesus sees. By participating in those forms, you begin to realize that the crowd may swing one way and the crowd may swing another. And believe me, it will. It will. 
One day they'll love you, the next they'll hate you. One day they'll elect you into office, the next day they'll act as though you're the devil himself. And the only person they won't blame is themselves for voting for you. Isn't that the craziest thing? People will vote for somebody and then realize that that person is the devil and act as though they didn't have anything to do with it. (laughs) It's strange. See, Pilate washes his hands because he knows that he has to make the choice. The crowd shouts for Barabbas and never feels responsible. But the kind of people who give their donkey to Jesus... The kind of people who bring their body, their mass to Jesus. The kind of people who show up and strangely lift their hands in worship and sing, I will give you all my worship. Not because the room moved them to do it, but because they in themselves want to follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of people who escape from the crowd. Because the crowd is everywhere. It's not just when people gather together. It's actually inside of every human heart. The desire to follow and serve and submit to somebody who is going to magically overthrow evil instead of join you in the middle of a real human life. This is why when we come into church, we are so caught up in what I will call liturgical forms. And I know the word liturgical, what does that mean? It means practices. Like in some charismatic churches, you'll have someone who comes in and they'll like whip you up to a froth. And we used to do that, and we might do it again. It's not even necessarily wrong. But what happens is someone comes in, come on, everybody, let's raise our hands. Come on, let's enter in. That's good because it's a biblical pattern. But it's bad if you need somebody to whip you into a froth. It means you're still submitted to the crowd. It's the person who has a value to lift their hands regardless of what everyone else around them is doing because they realize that the form is a prophetic act of submission to Jesus. I'll never forget being at camp, coming home from a camp service and seeing dad on the floor on his knees, cutting through a tea towel (laughs) and taking a stick and running a stick through it. And I was like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm making a flag. <laughs> he'd, taken a, he'd taken a Sharpie and he'd wrote, writ, he had written freedom on it. And if you know anything about my dad, he has the handwriting of a doctor. So it didn't look like freedom. I didn't know what it said. He had to explain it to me. But we had come out of a family culture that had taught us that there was, that there was limits to how you could express yourself. And dad was deeply uncomfortable with flagging in worship. And the pastor that morning of camp service had challenged them. He said, if you want something from the Lord, I want you to make a flag and wave it before the Lord. What a silly prophetic pattern. What a ridiculous thing to do. It's almost as ridiculous as raising your hands. It's almost as ridiculous as clapping your hands or shouting in praise. Why do we do any of these ridiculous things? Here dad is on his knees with a sharpie, a tea towel, and a stick that was actually probably too small. For it to be a legitimate flag, it kind of looked like a flag you'd put on the back of your bicycle, maybe. (laughs) But I remember thinking, you know what, Dad? I'm proud of you. Because, see, see, I was a youth then, and the crowd happened to be pointed in the right direction. See, the reason why young people can really get into praise and worship, the reason why young people can get fervent and zealous for the Lord is because it's easy for them to follow and not have to make a choice. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I was watching my dad make a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was, I don't understand this. 
I'm certainly not comfortable with this. And if it were up to me, I'd follow Jesus in almost any other way. But I really want to be free. Someone told me that I should make a flag. So I'm going to cut off this detail. (laughs) I don't know if he feels this way, but I know that for me, as his son, I noticed a turning point in his life toward freedom because he waved that flag. And here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. I would like to encourage you to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. It matters. The words that we sing matter. You may say to yourself, whatever, it's just, it's just words that we sing. Again, then you don't realize how they're influencing you. Like, I'm all for the radio. But if you're more comfortable singing out loud to the radio in your car than you are singing out loud on Sunday morning, you're being formed by the wrong thing. If you're embarrassed because you don't want to raise your hands in front of other people because it's like, well, what will they think of me and I forgot to wear deodorant today and I like to worship Jesus like this. No one talks like this. That's why I'm using this voice, this (laughs) Muppet voice. If you're like, well, I'm just a private person. Well, you may be a private person or you may be waiting for the crowd to whip you up into a frenzy. And I would like us to join Jesus and receive him for who he is. And in order to do that, we have to see the prophetic way, the pattern he's initiating, and join him in that. I remember going to youth. There was one guy, I even remember his name, even though I don't know this person from from Adam. But he just stood out to me because we had like three or four hundred people at these youth rallies. And he would come to the front and he would be like this. He'd be like... Like, he would worship with, like, his whole body. He was just like a, ah, you know, and he would, like, drop to his knees. Like, it was like a rock anthem. Every song was a rock anthem, you know? And I remember feeling jealous of him because I remember thinking, wow, I wish I could be that free. I wish I could worship Jesus with that much passion. And I remember confessing this to my youth leader, and he said, you don't want to imitate that guy. I said, why not? He said, because he's putting on a show for other people. What? He's putting on a show for other people. He's like, yeah, do you notice how he only stays for one song and then leaves? He's like, we have to stop him from making out with his girlfriend between songs. (laughs) He was a super emotional guy. (laughs) Very expressive. (laughs) What I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that in order, for, in order to worship Jesus, you have to be this crazy wild person who always goes against the current. That is not what I'm saying. I love it when I'm in the middle of a worship service and I feel voices surround me. Sometimes I'm not feeling it and I notice other people are feeling it and I'm like, there must be something here that I'm missing. So I'm just going to copy them. That is not the kind of danger of the crowd I'm talking about. The kind of danger I am talking about is the kind of danger that that takes away the agency you have in your own life to go, you know what, I will follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. I will raise my hands because I'm participating in a prophetic act of surrender. I will speak the truth because I want to be formed by the truth. I will join Jesus in what he's doing and I will worship the real Jesus that exists and not the one I wish existed. I want us to be people who shout Hosanna on Sunday and who stay in the garden on Friday. Remember, all 12 of Jesus' disciples betrayed him, not just Judas. 
they all ran from him. And it wasn't that they were afraid to die for him. It was that they were afraid to follow a man who was willing to submit himself all the way to death. If you gather in this place and you are afraid to submit your body to a form of worship that makes you uncomfortable, raising your hands, clapping your hands, lifting your voice, I'd like to suggest to you that that is the same death avoidance that would lead someone like Peter to flee Jesus in his hour of greatest need. The other element that is so important, and I'll finish with this, the other element of this whole conversation that is so important for us is we have to understand that in order to make sure that our family never becomes a crowd, the difference between the family and the crowd is the family worships God in spirit and in truth, the crowd follows the whims of whoever's the craziest. (laughs) The other difference between the family and the crowd is the family is committed to modeling a better way of being for the next generation. I used to come into worship and think, I need to be at the front, lifting my hands and singing loudly because I want to show Jesus how much I love him. That's how I felt when I was a kid. Now I'm an adult, and I realize that Jesus knows that I love him, and I know that Jesus loves me. So we're cool. I could skip church for 52 Sundays out of the year, and we would be cool. But I come to the front and I sing super loud. In fact, I sing too loud. I've been told I sing too loud. I've had people be like, you're singing too loud. And I'm like, no, I'm worshiping Jesus like that guy did in youth group. (laughs) Jesus! No. The reason why I do it is primarily to model for the next generation what it looks like to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. I want our kids to be formed in a pattern of worship that does not come naturally. The only thing that comes naturally is following the crowd. Did you know that? The only thing that comes naturally is following the crowd. It's like that far side comic of the penguin that's jumping up going, I am unique, and he's like one penguin out of a thousand. Like humans are mimetic, we're gonna follow one another. But my son will not learn the Lord's Prayer unless I teach it to him, line by line, precept by precept. He will not learn to raise his hands in worship unless I raise my hands with him. Very uncomfortable because I'm now double sweaty because I'm carrying a 35-pound child. And I'm saying, this is how we worship the Lord together. And we lift our hands. And then he gets distracted. And then he needs a break to color. (laughs) How about we take a little break? I'm like, okay, you sit down take a little break. I'll worship Jesus for another 30 seconds until you tug on my jeans and tell me you need fishy crackers. But I'm committed to this place in this time in this expression, not just for me, not just so that I become a person of spirit and truth, but so that the next generation sees what it looks like to follow Jesus, to follow the real Jesus, not the violent, conquering Jesus who magically solves our problems, but the one who gets into the middle of our lives and follows us to the end. 